And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 2, and our text this morning is going to be verse 20 and 21. Again, this is the word of the Lord. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O Lord, would you move in our midst, and would you apply this text to our minds and hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This past spring break, uh, Diane and I had the chance to visit New England. And we went to one of our favorite cities, Boston, Massachusetts. And if you've ever been to Boston, you know it's a fun city. It's a great town. There's lots to do. But particularly if you're like me where you just love history, there's so much there to take in and to be a part of. What struck me this time is I was walking down one street. They had a, a banner on a light post advertising the city of Boston. And it said, Boston, the birthplace of the American Revolution. And indeed, there is so much about our nation's history that began in Boston. So much that what took place over 200 years ago has dramatically shaped not only this country, but the world around us. Because of a revolution. And it got me thinking about the nature of calling something a revolution. In Webster's Dictionary... One of the many definitions, the shortest definition, is a sudden, radical, or complete change. A sudden, radical, or complete change. Well, the Apostle Paul knew something of revolution. His name was not always Paul. He was born Saul of Tarsus. And he grew up and he was trained to be a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And he grew in such stature and knowledge and such zeal for the law of God that he became such a prominent Pharisee that the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 7 that he not only gave witness to but gave approval for the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was present and he called it good. And I don't think it's an a unfair accusation to call Saul a hunter of Christians. Again, he believed in so powerfully the law of God to attain favor and righteousness of his own that this movement called Christianity he recognized was a threat to law-keeping, to earning your way before God. And he tried to snuff it out. But he would later write, as Paul that though it was his lifeblood and consuming passion, there was this nagging feeling under which he labored that no matter how hard he tried, observance to the law was never enough. Some 1,500 years after Paul, there was a monk who lived in Germany who felt the same way. He would spend hours upon hours in prayer chapels and in confession such so that he confessed his sins. He was so burdened 
and heavy under the weight of the law and under trying to appease this God who had given the law and his confessors in medieval Christianity, which was very works-based and merit-oriented, his confessors said, listening to you is boring. But there was no sin that still wasn't treasonous to the monk named Martin Luther until he read the words of the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, in the book of Romans. Because Paul knew. Paul had experienced not just an intellectual, not just a political, not just a social revolution. He had experienced a personal transformation on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 because he had met the crucified and the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ on that road. And Paul was never the same. And as Paul wrote, a monk named Martin Luther was changed and he was never the same. And God used these men and many like them to ignite a movement, a restoration of God's word and of a doctrine that we triumph and celebrate in the Protestant churches today, a doctrine known as justification by faith alone. How we stand, how do we presume to stand in the presence of a just and holy God? Talk about radical change and revolution. But the Apostle Paul would go on after this radical transformation and this conversion Paul would go on to live a life of faith. He was never the same again. He became the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. He planted so many churches around the Mediterranean. He became a pastor and a church planner and an author of 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And one of those books that he wrote, a letter to the church in Galatia, one of his earliest writings, he was writing because he had discovered that something had gone terribly wrong. He had preached the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. And many people in Galatia had been converted. They trusted Christ. But there was a group that infiltrated the camp, so to speak. And they were very subtle, but they were very dangerous. They were known as the Judaizers. And they were teaching that this thing called salvation and gospel and good news was really good. But... You still need to become Jewish first. They added things like circumcision, like dietary laws of the Old Testament for Gentile Christians, for those who had been outside of the covenant, who now a way had been made open to them through Christ to become the adopted sons and daughters of God. And they began teaching that it's by faith. But you still have to do this, do that. Add to this. And it so disturbed and troubled Paul that Paul, who was never one to avoid controversy, couldn't help but pick up his pen and write this letter to the Church of Galatia. Many commentators suggest that this is even a rough draft of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, which is one of the most important, probably the most important book in the Bible as far as understanding the whole counsel of God and the whole nature of of God's righteousness and salvation offered in Christ. And so the context of our passage this morning is such that in the first chapter, Paul has been writing, he has been 
defending his own right to even write to them. He's defending his apostleship. He's defending his authority to declare to them that his message that he preached is the gospel. Indeed, that there is no other gospel. There is no other way to be made righteous before God except by faith and in Christ. And Paul writes in chapter 2 how he had a little bit of a skirmish with the apostle Peter. It didn't take the church too long to uh, have controversy and to disagree, right? We don't ever disagree today, do we, right? No, no, of course not. But see, what happened with Peter was Peter had been preaching this same message of Paul. But then as he applied it to his life and to the relationships with other believers, particularly Gentile believers, he wouldn't eat with them. He wouldn't sit down at the same table. And Paul saw this for the contradiction that it was because if you proclaim and believe, it's by faith and faith alone. Then by putting something else on top of it or adding an extra uh, regulation or stipulation, it's no longer the gospel. And so Paul and Peter, and there's a big meeting in Acts chapter 15 about this. Won't go into it. But now we come to our context, Galatians 2.20. Some commentators suggest that perhaps what Paul is doing is this is a quotation. That this, our passage, is what Paul had actually said first to Peter. I don't know if I agree completely with that, but I think it's still justified in the sense that this is the message. This is the central idea, the crux. What does it mean to stand before a just and holy God? I, this past week, as I was preparing for this message, I googled, uh, what's the most important question in life? If you haven't done that, I encourage you to try it. There's a lot of weird answers. Some of them are good. Some are not so good. But uh, to kind of sum up, I think uh, most of what the sentiment is, if I were to give a summary of what, at least on Google, is the most important question in life, it's what's my life's purpose? What's my life's purpose? It's a good question. It's a question we need to ask. In fact, our, our confession, the Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, begins with what is man's chief end? There's a reason it does that. But I submit to you that there's even a more pressing question. It's the question that is sort of the foundation beneath Galatians 2.20. It's a question we don't ask in our culture anymore. We don't like to hear it because it presumes something. The question is, for the Protestant reformers, for the Apostle Paul, for the Christians living in the first century, how do we escape the judgment that is to come? So we don't like that question because what does that assume? There's a judgment coming. And that we are in need of rescue. We're in need of redemption. We don't like to think like that. We don't like to talk like that. But the Apostle Paul saw the beauty of it. Because the question is also important to ask for this reason. Not only how do we escape the judgment. How do we as sin sick, as filthy, treasonous people before the God who is good and holy and righteous. Not only how do we escape the judgment, 
But what difference does it make in the life here and now? So what? So what? I think both of those questions are being answered in Galatians 2.20. But I want to say at the outset, I firmly believe that what Paul is talking about primarily is how sinners are justified before God. But what I want to focus in the time remaining is something that doesn't always get talked about. So what? We're justified by faith and by faith alone. It's not by our works. It's not by trying. It's not by law-keeping. But what difference does it make? As we're in our series on faith, I've written this sentence. It's not... uh, very profound, but I think it gets at the heart of what this passage is talking about. The faith that justifies, the faith that saves, what I call living faith, is a daily trusting in the grace of God, which enables us to put off self and to put on Christ. Living faith is a daily trusting in the grace of God, which enables us to put off self And to put on Christ. Paul explains in verse 20. How it is that happens. What did Paul do about it? What do we do about it? It's a mystery of God. Because the whole crux is dependent upon. This thing we call union with Christ. We are united. This letter is intensely personal. This is not theological abstraction anymore. It's intensely personal. Count the number of pronouns sometimes in the book of Galatians. I, we, me, for us, for me. My sin reckoned to Christ on the cross. His righteousness transferred to me by faith, by faith alone. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's a strange statement, but as John Murray Scottish theologian and professor of Westminster Theological Seminary in the 20th century writes, it is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I remember uh, my sophomore year in college in a a creative writing class, we were given the task, it sounds morbid at first, but it actually was a, a very refreshing and challenging assignment, to write my own obituary. What would you say? If you had to write your own obituary, leaving out, I mean, the details of how long and your job, but what gets written about you at the end of your life? And it really called me to task on a lot of things, and it really forced me to evaluate what's really important, what really matters. The Apostle Paul has done the same thing in the preceding verse, verse 19. Read with me. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. It's a strange sentence. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. Notice Paul doesn't say the law is dead. Right? That's a a false reading and a false understanding. A lot of people in the church throughout the past two centuries have taken doctrines like the doctrine of justification by faith and have said, okay, well, the law's out and grace is in. We don't need to worry about how we live our lives. No. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul never says the problem was ever with the law. Paul recognized the problem was with himself. 
He couldn't keep it. The law's demand was perfection. And he died in the sense that the law killed him. Because as he saw the law, he saw the just and righteous character of God and he knew he couldn't live up to it. So he died to it. And again, for Paul, this is not just writing some systematic theology. As we said earlier, Saul of Tarsus was zealous, was consumed by the law. And so when he says he died to it, he's dying to the very way of life he once held dear. Everything that mattered most to Paul, he now knew was gone. He was dead to it. It couldn't save him. He was dead to it so that he might live to God. Paul had to put off self. But he recognized as he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he met the one who could fulfill the law. And so as Paul is trusting in Christ, how? By faith. That union, it's, it's mysterious. <coughs> I can't, excuse me, I cannot explain it. But we know it's true. It's such that, so close and so personal, so that when you read about the life of Jesus, it's as if you are living that life. That's how God sees you. A lot of people look for self-esteem in themselves. But here is where identity really is. It's in the one who obeyed the law perfectly. And so as Jesus is obeying the law, and we're trusting him by faith, God is reckoning that to us. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the cross which is the most vile and vulgar and sickening sight, in human history because the wrath of God is poured out on the one place it has no right to go to the innocent blood of the only one who ever lived a perfect life but he's there for Paul and he's there for us he's dying for us so that we in a sense with our union in Christ by faith the wrath of God the punishment of sin is being carried out upon Christ and as Christ is buried we are buried. And as Christ is raised to newness of life, so we too are raised to newness of life. But again, we ask the question, so what? If that's true for you, then there ain't no going back, is there? You can't pick up your former way of life. You can't hold on to what you once held dear apart from Christ. And Paul knew that. He recognized that. If you want to talk about a revolution, this is it. There's no going back. Faith in Christ is an identity. It's not just some intellectual assent to certain dogmas or doctrines. It's not less than that. It certainly is believing the right things. And we, Reformed Presbyterians, we love our theology and I love that we love it. But it's not just putting on Facebook your religious views as Christian. Right? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Apostle Paul, who once had a promising career, 
as a Pharisee, as one who would sit in places of, of honor, of places of splendor, now writes his letters from prison. And I'm going to read to you, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read to you what he says, what Luke records in the book of Acts, from chapter 20, verse 24. This is how, how does Paul do it? More specifically, he says in 2024 of Acts, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value to myself. We love ourselves, don't we? Boy, I do sometimes. I'm ashamed to admit as I was thinking about this text, I was even convicted how many times in my own heart, in my own life, when I finally get a moment to be away from all the noise and to be away from all the stress, you know where my mind goes? It goes to me. It goes to my life. It goes to my desires, my hopes. And I measure up, how am I doing? Or, or God, how are you doing? And giving me what I want. But Paul says I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now Paul's not writing a suicide note. Paul's not saying that the man Paul. With all his idiosyncrasies and personalities. And everything that made Paul Paul is gone. No. He's recognizing. You know what's really valuable? You know what is really worth living for? You know where you really get your self-worth and your identity? It's not in here. It's in Him. Paul saw that and knew it. He's living it out. He's encouraging the Galatians to be reminded that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. One of the greatest theologians in the Western world, St. Augustine, Augustine writes in his confessions how one day after he was converted, and Augustine had a pretty tawdry past, um, he was writing how one day he's walking in the streets and there was a prostitute who was a former lover of Augustine and she saw Augustine from afar and she cried out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Augustine turned and saw who it was and all he replied was, but it is not I. We don't talk like that anymore. It's not me. I'm not the same person. That person you knew who b- before, it's not me anymore. I don't have the same desires. I don't have the same heart. I don't live for the same things anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. What about us? What do we cling to? If we live by faith, we are united with Christ in the same way as Paul. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus' crucifixion is a once and for all deal. It's not that every day as we live this out in faith that Jesus is somehow being uh, put back on the cross. But it is saying that we crucify our desires and our flesh. What do you need to crucify? The former way of life to let go of. There's a lot in our lives. Things haven't always turned out as the way we wanted them, have they? It's not the deal we thought we'd get. 
We dreamed of a life one way. Sometimes we get it. We praise the Lord. God chooses to bless us. Sometimes we don't get it. But that can be a blessing too. What are we holding on to? Is it a job? Is it a hope of a promotion? The hope of a better house? A better car? A better spouse? A new place to live? If we're uh, young, if we, do we go to the right schools? Are we going to get into the right college? Are we going to have the right job? Are we going to be looked at a certain way? If we're single, if we're single, is it that we get married? If we're married and without children, is it that we have children? If we have children, is that our children uh, live a certain way so we look good? All good things, but they become idols when they replace the one true and living God in our heart's affections and in our joy and in our desire. I want to read to you from one of the uh, great philosophers of our day, an Academy Award-winning actress. Uh, actors and actresses really do have nuggets of wisdom, don't they? But our world certainly listens to them. This is what she writes. The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you are going, when you look at your work, your marriages, your relationships, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine that closely, the only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. Isn't that the way of the world? It's all about you. Are you happy? Have you found yourself? Are you fulfilled? Again, I'm not knocking these questions and saying that they're bad questions. But they've become the idols of our culture and the idols of our own hearts because we love ourselves. And we love when good things happen to us. And we are so mad at God or maybe even ourselves or other people when things don't go our way. But again, if all that we were left with was just putting off self, we'd be stuck in the carousel of legalism forever. Because we'd just try harder and harder to put off self. But you know how that happens? It's by putting on Christ. Something's got to fill its place. If we're not the center of our own universe, or our job or family, whatever it is, And what's going to fill its place? And we have been created and made in such a way that a relationship with God is the only thing that fills the vacuum in our soul. And it's hard sometimes. It's a a paradox sometimes, isn't it? It's how, why Jesus said that death is gain. Why the way to keep your life is to lose it. It's why, though my heart and my flesh and my everything fail me, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. It's how the way of the most heinous instrument of death becomes the gateway to life. The cross. It all hinges and centers around the event of Calvary's cross. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great theologian of the 20th century, in writing on Paul's letter to Galatians, writes, This is the central thing. The thing that matters above everything else is the cross. We put on Christ. We put on the cross. You know, have you ever met people who have done this, who've put on Christ? I know I have. And they're such a joy and so much fun. And I love being around them. Because they're so filled up with Jesus that they're just overflowing. They can't help but talk about how good God has been. They can't help but be in His Word. They love to go before their Father in Heaven in prayer. They hunger and desire and they love worship. They love to be in God's house and they love the fellowship of the saints. So much so that when they miss it, they feel like they've missed out on the really best in life. And they can't wait to talk to anybody they can find about Jesus. I got a a text this morning from a friend of mine who met someone this past week and they said, this person's personal goal, not saying that this is what all of us should be, but just this person in their own conscience before the Lord has made it a goal. They want to share Jesus with 50 new people a week 50, I don't even know if I meet 50 people in a week. But 50 new, I want to share Jesus with 50 new people a week. That's awesome. That's putting on Christ. That's recognizing, you know, my life isn't of really any value. Ironically, the more you center on Christ, the more you put on Christ, that's where your life really is valuable. Again, we're not saying that putting off self is a blow to dignity. No, that's what sin has done. But putting on Christ is recognizing who we were made to be. Children of the living God. So that one day, when we do die, and we don't need to fear, as we sang earlier, death itself. Because we've already been crucified with Christ. And to stand before the Father and the Judge on that day, and to see His glory, and to know we will not hear the words, depart from me. But we'll hear the words, welcome. And enter into the joy of your salvation. I know of one brother in the Lord. He's a pastor in California. And he's fighting for his life right now. He has a disease that is attacking his blood cells. He has to have a multiple blood transfusions doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. But he's written weekly updates to his congregation. And I've had the privilege and honor of being able to get and receive these letters and such encouragement. He writes in the one from last week. This week he's having a, a serious surgery again. And he writes and he closes his email with these words. I have the promises of God that I have been crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. Regardless of the outcome, those promises can never be taken away. Amen. Those promises can never be taken away. If you've been crucified with Christ, if, you, if the life you now live, you live by faith in the flesh and the Son of God, and there's nothing this world can do to you. I know it gets hard. Our pain is real. Our suffering is real. 
But if we've been justified, we know we have hope. We have living faith. We can put off ourself and we can put on Christ and all his glory and behold him and live for him. It's intensely personal. He loved me. He died for me. The life I live, I live by faith. And what? Not in what happens. Not in how hard I try. But in Jesus. The author and perfecter of my faith. This is all the gift of God. Even our faith is a gift. No matter how hard we try to understand or believe... Our hearts of stone do not become hearts of flesh until God the Holy Spirit moves and transforms and breathes life into our soul. That's what God is in the business of doing. He's not in the business of always making us comfortable. He's not in the business of giving us a life of ease. He's in the business of conforming us into the image of His only begotten Son, of living A life of crucifixion. A life, we say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wrestle with this every day. Everything I've said this morning, I'm saying to myself first. But we need to do it. We need to trust. We need to live there's some who I mentioned earlier who, when they come to such doctrines or truths in the Scripture, they say, praise the Lord. It doesn't matter how I live now. Because God's going to forgive me. The righteousness is not mine, it's His. Paul's saying, you've missed the point. He said earlier in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's saying, why build back up a life of sin, a life of slavery, a life obsessed with self? Why build that back up and make Christ a minister of sin? By faith, it's been torn down. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live the rat race anymore. This world in which we live It's sometimes like a treadmill. And we burn ourselves out, running and sprinting and going after it. But we haven't gotten anywhere. Because there's still more to do. There's still higher heights to be climbed. There's still more success we think we need. If anyone says it's easy, they haven't walked the Calvary Road. But being crucified with Christ... We do not nullify the grace of God. But we live this life now. A daily reliance. A daily trust. A daily dying to ourselves. And living to God. And what does this look like? This is not Christian perfectionism. This isn't trying to just look good on the exterior. This is as Paul will later say. And he ends his letter. It's a life living faith daily reliance upon the grace. It's a life of fruit of the Spirit. He writes in chapter 5, verse 22, 
and following. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. I have been crucified with Christ. You know, I haven't met anyone in the church today or even in our culture who would be like the Judaizers who would say, okay, all that um, gospel message stuff, that's good, but still you've got to adhere to the Old Testament law. Now, I know there's some people out there who might think that. I just haven't talked to any of them. But you know what that looks like today? Something that gets called nominal Christianity. It's coming to church on Sunday and singing songs, listening to sermons, and being friendly to one another. But then it's leaving the doors afterwards and living as if nothing's different, if nothing's changed. It's still a desire and an adding to the gospel in the sense that it says, I'm not going to give up the world. It's a denial of what Paul writes in Romans 12 and encourages us to live our lives in such a way that our life is a sacrificial offering before God. It's a form of worship. And it looks like our culture says, you can keep what you want on Sunday morning, but don't bring that grace and truth and gospel to work on Monday morning or to athletics and sports. Don't bring it into the deer camp. Don't bring it into all our activities. Don't bring it and don't live it anywhere else. You keep it in a box where it is. And so nominal Christianity is like the Judaizers saying, it's, Christ, it's the gospel plus. I'm a Christian on Sunday, but I also think I've got to live in a worldly way to attain acceptance and joy by still being as the world wants me to be and wants me to live. And Paul would say, what are you doing? You've been crucified with Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. If we think back in closing to the assignment I had to do in college, what would you write if you had to write your own obituary? I'm not saying job titles. I'm not saying what charities you may have given to. But what really matters? Who are we really? Where's our identity? Where do we get our worth? And a hundred years from now, what difference will any of this make? But I'll tell you what will last and what has real meaning and significance and glory. It's living a life by faith, by daily trusting in the grace of God to put off self and to say, you know, my life has no value in the sense that what happens to me, it's okay. Because I love Jesus and I want to see him high and lifted up. And however God wants to do that in my life, May it be to the praise of His glorious grace. And I know that my Redeemer lives 
And I know that there is nothing that can steal or rob me of my faith and my hope and my joy. Because it's not in what happens to me. It's not in how hard I try or what rules and laws I want to keep. It's in the finished work of the risen Christ and in Him alone. Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you put off self? Have you put on Christ? This is the life we're called to live in response to God's amazing and loving grace by which He justifies and calls us His own. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in awe of your grace, in awe of your goodness. We confess our sin, our need of you. We confess that, like Paul, we have burned ourselves out and we have died through the law to the law to trying to earn our own way and trying to live for ourselves. Oh, Father, we can't do it. No matter how hard we try, we can't do it. We need your Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come and move in our minds and in our hearts that we might experience a revolution and revival and a joy that seeks after your holiness and your love and your truth. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.